As someone who uh, had a running narrative in her head about screwing things up, you know, someone who second-guessed a lot of her big decisions, um, it wasn't that I was regretful. Um, I saw sort of the magic of mistake in that live inside mistakes and the magic of like, you know, fumbling along and being in crisis and suddenly being a new life is revealed to you. Um, but I do think that I had uh, so many negative voices and messages in my head for so long that that if anyone brings me um, a, any kind of like discouraged or disappointed tale, um, I've sort of untangled those knots so many times that it's easy for me to dive in and sort of prescribe a way to untangle the knots for someone else. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, Heather Haverleski, is the popular and beloved creator of the Ask Polly advice column. It originated in the digital publication, The All, and moved to New York Magazine in 2014 where it enjoyed a very successful run, both in the print magazine and the digital site, The Cut. Heather has just moved the column to Substack, the subscriber newsletter platform that is hosting more and more independent journalists as they leave traditional publishing. I invited her onto the podcast to talk about the legacy of Ask Polly, the creation of Polly's annex in the advice-giving world, Ask Molly, and how she came to be a sort of existential advisor to people who feel lost in the world or confused by life. I should tell you that this interview is a bit different from what you usually hear on this podcast. Heather and I have been friends for a long time and have had some differences over the last couple of years, many of them stemming from the different ways we've responded to the Trump era and the changing cultural tides before then. We get into things pretty intensely about a third of the way into the conversation. So depending on your taste for friendly, if robust disagreement, this may be the best thing you ever heard or the most uncomfortable. On a separate note, I should say that you'll hear Heather refer a few times to the pop culture site Suck.com, which stopped publishing in 2001. This is a site she wrote for early in her career, and for the purposes of streamlining, I wasn't able to include all of what she had to say about working there, but it was a very cool enterprise, and you should Google it if you're interested. Finally, and I promise this is the last thing, this episode, like last week's, has a brief advertisement in the middle. If you'd like ad-free versions of the podcast, please subscribe at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. And now here's Heather. Heather Haverleski, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Megan, for having me on your podcast. You've been writing the Ask Polly column since 2012, right? You, uh, you started yeah. it at the All, which is a now defunct online magazine. You moved it to New York Magazine in 2014. In 2019, you began a Substack featuring a sort of satellite Polly persona named Molly. We're here to talk about how you've now moved Polly to Substack. But before we get to that, I actually want to talk about the questions that you got from readers nine years ago versus what you get today. Has the nature of the advice people are seeking changed? I can only assume your answers have changed as you've gotten older, but I'm I'm curious about the questions themselves. What what were people asking 
back then? What kinds of people were asking you questions and what did they want to know? Well, um, I would say that in the early days, people asked me questions. I mean, okay, so I, I guess I'm hesitating because in some ways, the questions remain exactly the same <laughs> over the course of nine years. Do um, you always, always get questions about, um, I have, I've never been in love before. How will I land there? Um, I have the, I have a friend that I have a giant crush on and I don't know if I should tell them or not. Um, I have a boyfriend who's shitty and I, uh, what should I do to fix him to make him less shitty? <laughs> um, yeah. And then, um, so there, those are the classic questions, but then, uh, I would say that there's been a shift. The pandemic made things very dark. There were a lot of very, very, I'm very depressed, um, letters and I was going through some stuff. So it was like incredibly, uh, hard to answer, uh, a lot of the letters that were coming into my inbox at that time. Um, and um, when I did manage it, I don't know, it's, it's a strange thing. It's like, I think, I think of myself as partially an entertainer. And so, and, and, you know, it's like, I don't just give decent guidance. I also, I want it to be fun for anyone, you know? Um, so for a while it was hard to do my job. Um, but I think that the, the, the sort of ambient noise of, of anxiety and dissatisfaction has grown over the nine, those nine years, I would say that's, uh, and was the conceit originally that you were going to take questions that sort of reminded you of your own issues and kind of talk in a relational way to the person? Am I remembering that correctly? Well, I certainly didn't expect to, uh, constantly find people who had my own issues. I expected to just be um, an incredible sage who could drop in any problem and give you the right answer. And I do think that my idea that I, my very self-righteous idea that I knew exactly uh, what people should be doing and where they should be headed um, was kind of, you know, impenetrable and set in stone uh, nine years ago. And now I, I have a much looser and less uh, self-righteous view of like, there's one path forward and it's this one. Um, but, <laughs> but what made, wait, but hang on. Cause I don't actually recall your earlier columns being that way. Did you really think that you, there was one right way to do things and you just happened to be born a person who knew those sorts of answers? Not necessarily. No, no. I, I think that, you know, the okay, so the original idea for the column really was just, I'll get on there and, and, and bullshit around and sort of give people some tough love and I'll make some jokes and it'll be fun and I'll get out. Like, it won't be that. Um, this is not a heartfelt advice column. It'll just be existential advice, fun stuff, you know, a high five, um, go get him, tiger. Um, or you're screwing up. What's wrong with you? Ha ha ha. You know, making some jokes, getting out. Um, but you know, as I started to do it, I started to write really heartfelt stuff and I, I was sort of surprised at how much I had to say. And then, you know, at some point I started to realize how, um, 
it wasn't just that, okay, sure, maybe I'm selecting for the people who are a little bit like me who are writing to me, but it turns out that there are just a lot of people who have the same kinds of problems. I'm sure a lot of people are are fans of yours. Um, even if they are fans, I feel like maybe they don't know sort of where you came from. They know you as an advice giver. You do talk about your life a lot, but like you obviously, I'm assuming you did not grow up thinking you would be an advice columnist or or be in this position. Like maybe you could just sort of take a little few minutes here and like tell us where you grew up, where you came from, what kind of background, what is the lived experience that is informing your sensibility and the one that dispenses this kind of advice? Um, well, I mean, I don't necessarily consider myself an advice columnist. It is one of the jobs I do. I kind of, I've sort of begun to be, I have become more comfortable with that title, certainly, um, lately, because it's more of my, you know, in terms of my daily bread, you know, but, um, but yeah, um, I, (laughs) I just, uh, let's see, I got, I have to summarize my whole life and how it led me to become an advice columnist, but there should be a way to do that. (laughs) If somebody writes to you and they say, if, if they're 35 years old and they say, I can't find love, you know, I've, I feel like I've messed up my whole life. I tried to have, you know, such and such kind of career. Like, who are they talking to? If they're sitting down across the table and talking to a yeah. person on an intimate level, who is that person that they're looking at? And right also now? why, why would they ask me? And I think that the reason, yeah. the reason they'd ask me is because, um, I was plagued by the sense that I was fucking everything up, um, constantly when I was younger. And I continued to kind of carry that baggage around with me, um, up until the point where I started writing this advice column, actually, I sort of talked to myself out of thinking that way slowly over the course of the past nine years. And I don't remotely think that way anymore. Um, if anything, I'm intolerably f- full of myself now, <laughs> but, um, but I think that as someone who, uh, had a running narrative in her head about screwing things up, you know, someone who second guessed a lot of her big decisions. Um, it wasn't that I was regretful. Um, I saw sort of the magic of mistake in that live inside mistakes and the magic of like, you know, fumbling along and being in crisis and suddenly being a new life is revealed to you. Um, but I do think that, um, I do think that I had uh, so many negative voices and messages in my head for so long that that if anyone brings me um, a, any kind of like discouraged or disappointed tale, um, I've sort of untangled those knots so many times that it's easy for me to dive in and sort of prescribe a way to untangle the knots for someone else. Um, and I mean, while I try to uh, try to make things concrete. Um, that can get a little bit boring. The concrete things are sort of repetitive, right? They're like, get up in the morning and don't first thing, you know, first thing of all, don't think about what you don't want to do that day, which is what I used to do. Um, exercise, you know, uh, try to, you don't, you might not want to do it, but you just know you're going to somehow do some variety of it at some point, unless you want to feel like shit. Well, in my case, um, you know, treat yourself well, I, you know, the concrete things are sort of obvious, but, you know, I revisit them sometimes, but I think the major thing that I offer is, uh, 
I'm looking to shift someone's entire paradigm. Like I'm looking to say something in such a way that it inspires a major shift in perspective. Wow. That's, that's a heavy lift. So like, can you point to some examples when you were younger, where you, you thought you were fucking up or you just weren't at the place where you wanted to be? Like, yeah. What what Um, were some of the the turns in the road? Well, um, there are so many, so many to choose from. I mean, look, we know you, 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 you're from North Carolina that we, you grew up in, in Durham. You, you know, you, you went to college. I think, did you go to come to San Francisco right after college? You, yeah. Did you want so to I be a writer? So yeah. what, what did you th- want your life to be when you were in college, say? Um, well, when I, I, I grew up in Durham and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of faintly wanted to be a writer. I wrote in journals a lot, journals I called them because it sounded less floofy and feminine <laughs> diaries. Um, and, and my, my, my dad was an econ professor. My mom was a, was a housewife because my dad insisted that my mom stay home. Um, they got divorced when I was 10. Uh, I would say the general kind of benign neglect of the seventies plays a role in my, um, it wasn't necessarily specific to my family, but, um, but we all know that the shape of that childhood where you're just sort of like latchkey kid, unlock the front door. I used to walk home from the bus stop and unlock the door. I mean, this is when we, we all did it. Home mom and you were still a latchkey kid. That's amazing. Well, I mean, my parents got divorced when I was 10, right? So that's right. Oh, and then so, she worked after that. Okay. Yeah. So then she worked full time. Um, and, you know, my, my childhood was interestingly a mix of, and it kind of makes sense in terms of the stuff I write. My childhood was a mix of really sad, really depressing things and incredibly joyful, easy, fun. I mean, my family had fun together. My, my Both of my parents had a great sense of humor. Um, everyone in my family is sort of avoidant. My dad was not, uh, was more kind of anxious, like more... Um, emotional and more of kind of like a confessor of big things. Um, uh, but then my dad died when I was 25. Um, I followed a boyfriend of mine out to San Francisco after I graduated from Duke. And when I went to Duke, I didn't realize that I was, um, you know, all I really did at Duke was, uh, chase boys and, uh, drink a lot. So I wasn't that into my education. I I took um, a lot of uh, women's studies courses, as they called them in the old days, (laughs) in the olden times, and Marxism. I was really into Marxism, and uh, and uh, and I was a psychology major. Um, But so you were a social justice uh, activist. (laughs) Social justice. I mean, I was kind of. you were a Marxist women's. Studies. I was like, I was a good case for the National Association of Scholars. You know, they were like the people who said you should be reading the Western Canon. You shouldn't be reading a reaction to the Western Canon. Um, mm-hmm. I was only reading the reactions. I was not. Oh. I was not schooled in the classics. Um, but I loved. I loved reading Marx. Um, and I loved reading feminist texts. And 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 those texts were the ones that sort of, um, made sense to me. Uh, if they presented a, uh, Marx in particular sort of, and also just like 
the sort of Marxist feminist presented a, a, an understanding of the world that felt like it lived underneath the world that we were all sort of acknowledging on the surface. You know, I had a sense that like there was another universe of, 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 you know, like uh, values underneath the kind of, or, and, and there are other gears, you know, shifting underneath what we could see kind of thing. I don't know, whatever I'm getting to, granular about <laughs> granular and vague at the same time. Um, I'm just a room full of dust, Megan, <laughs> just floating around. You had written to Polly when you were say 25. Mm-hmm. What question would you have asked or what would your lament have been? At age 25, my dad had just died. And, uh, I mean, that was actually a breakthrough in my life before, right before 25, I would have written to Polly and said, you know, how do I find a boyfriend? Something like that. And because I was, um, I was sort of weirdly, I was kind of hitting rock bottom, honestly. I was like, it wasn't that I was drinking constantly or that I was, my entire life was falling apart. I was holding down a job, but I felt, um, I sort of go out at night and sort of follow people around. Like I was a little bit of a wreck. Um, Wait, what do you mean? Like strangers on the street? I would. Fi- I don't know. I just, it was like, I was, I was in kind of a hookup mode. Um, but I felt like I was never really impressing anyone that much. And I was, I was like a, I felt kind of like I was begging for scraps everywhere I went, you know, with my friends. I don't know. I, some of my friends don't really love this characterization from that time because they are just like, you were fine. Like, why did you, why is your story so dark? But see, that's part of it. I think my running narrative for years was just much more negative than what was actually what most of the stuff that was taking place. Like I had a real, I just was, you know, I was kind of ruled by my shame and my um, anxiety. I didn't really realize that I was a little bit depressed, very naturally anxious, um, a people pleaser. I mean, all of these things that are actually quite common in um, women in particular in their twenties. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I would have said, Polly, you know, I mean, I remember reading Cynthia Heimel back then and thinking, oh, gosh. It was so great. Ah, uh, just like, you're the only person who can understand me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I get letters like that where I, I just, the vibe of the letter is you're the one person who might be able to help me out. And I mean, part of what that means is you're the one person who's describing their reality in a way that it matches mine. You know, I mean, that's part of my job. Part of my job is just to to sort of listen and hear and understand how someone lands somewhere uh, and empathize with it. Because ultimately, I mean, I would say, you know, 70% of the function of Ask Polly is just showing up and saying, it's not your fault that you are where you are. This is like how the world is structured, you know? everybody lands in this space. And it's also not unique to feel terrible in your twenties and to feel lost and to feel sure that every single thing you try is going to be a giant embarrassing joke and it's going to fail. I know. Like I sometimes feel like I have this like retroactive, um, not, not disdain. Well, maybe disdain for myself, not disgust. Like I I look back at myself 
even though I romanticize a lot of stuff about my 20s, like I have a real nostalgia for that period. But at the same time, there's like this, like, oh my God, I, I can't believe like I only had two pairs of shoes. And I thought, I thought when I was in my 20s, I thought that my feet were so disgusting that I couldn't even go get a pedicure because I would disgust the nail salon ladies. Like I just had this idea in my head. I don't know why. Like, I, well, I can't do anything about it because I can't get a, I can't get a pedicure. So it was like this, uh, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. And it was completely made up in my head. Yeah, I remember when I, I worked from home in my late 20s and I had moved from San Francisco to, L, to L.A. And I was getting, I was just trying to get really weird. I freelanced for about two years and then, um, and then Salon's TV critic position opened up um, and I had been freelancing for them a little bit. Uh, and they hired me as their TV critic in the fall of 2003. And I worked there until 2010. And Salon, I mean, just for listeners who don't know, it was a very different publication than yeah. it has been over the last several years. I mean, Camille Paglia was a columnist at Salon. Isn't yeah. it amazing to contemplate? Yeah. So, <laughs> Salon was interesting. I mean, Salon was, you know, had a lot of smart people writing for it. Um, Glenn Greenwald also wrote for Salon back then. Jake Tapper wrote for Salon, was a reporter who worked for Salon. Um, yep. A lot of wow. a lot of a lot of wild people got their start at Salon. Those years, I feel like that was sort of an inflection point uh, in terms of reader feedback. Like this yeah. was before social media. It was before you know, like uh, it was before everybody. Obviously, before Twitter. But I remember the comments in Salon being so vile and sort of famously hard to take. And I don't know if that's just naivete looking back at that or if for some reason the the comments just sort of had a life of their own, especially because they would run personal essays. That's not what you were doing. But like, so what was your relationship to your readers at that point? Were you getting people like being mean to you and writing nasty comments and, or, or did you not care? So I did learn at salon to, uh, how to kind of, I mean, at the time though, when you're young, you're sort of a little bit more, um, resilient. Like it, it got under my skin eventually, but I sort of had learned to expect it and I didn't take it that seriously. Do you think if you were at that stage in your career with the media landscape, the way it is now, Do you think you would have turned into a different kind of writer? If I, if I, um, if I were at a different stage in my career when, oh, the way things are now. Yeah. Like if you were say, you know, those, those years when you were writing for soccer salon, say, say Mm -hmm. that, you know, you, that that Twitter had been around or this kind of um, the noise landscape to mix metaphors, w- was at the intensity that it is now. Do you think that your younger self would have been able to kind of handle that? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it. I think that those kind of, um, the invasive sort of self-consciousness, like um, the, the, this sort of, the sort of perpetual impetus to become increasingly self-conscious um, about, your own motives, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Um, there's a way that Twitter gets under your skin 
not just Twitter, but like um, the the overall mood in social media can just leak, kind of leak into the groundwater of your thinking in ways that kind of like some jackassy commenter from 2004 couldn't, right? So, well, because it's your own friends right now, right? It's sort of like the jackassy commenter is not your problem, right? But if it's your peers, yeah. Right. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think of it more as like a, a kind of floating cloud of anxious, toxic gas that kind of like, uh, it, it just, just pollutes you slowly and you don't realize it. And you're, you know, you, you go online and you think you're rewarding yourself for a, a hard day's work or something. You're like, I'll just go check the news. Um, and the next thing you know, you're like anxiously, you know, like sort of pacing around online looking for something and you don't know what it is. And it's like, you know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just keep refreshing and something good will come. And suddenly you have a bad attitude towards a lot of things that you thought you were neutral about. Um, but, and yet there's this voice that says you are not permitted to remain neutral. I mean, I do think that that, to me, it's sort of like, that's the part that is hard for a writer is that you can't take the bait of now I'm going to hold forth on this, especially if you are a generalist. I mean, I've written about books, TV, culture at large. Uh, I give people advice. I mean, I'm the, I am the jackass, the king of the jackasses, right? I mean, I think that my opinion matters, um, in so many different areas, so many different realms. I'm like, I know about that. Let me tell you about it um, without actually having expertise in anything. Um, so I'm, I am extremely vulnerable to those toxic gases. Um, and yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that I would have the same kind of career. I mean, I don't know what I, I don't know what I would do. I would just say though, that those kinds of gases get in, in different ways. Those pollutants sort of sink into different people, different ways. I think at my age, it becomes a thing like, oh, Jesus, you know, you're old and washed up. Like, why are you even talking? Shut the fuck up. Um, I think when you're younger, it's like you don't have a career yet. What's your fucking problem? You, you don't have a leg to stand on. Um, it, everybody has their own or, you know, you're not lovable. Nobody likes you. Uh, we all have our own ways of metabolizing those influences. And I think that we all stand to gain a great deal from stepping back from the abyss and just uh, creating our own little temples of meaning in our own lives without, uh, without take, you know, without passing out a uh, reader feedback uh, comment cards. Do you remember the early uh, reader mail you were getting for Polly? So you, you moved ask Polly from the all to New York magazine in 2014 so between 2014 and 2000, and now, now you've moved it to Substack. I mean, a lot has changed. The entire, the, you know, the discourse has changed. People's values have changed. What people are willing to say in public has changed. Have you changed the way you answer questions? Uh, and are people, you know, this is going back to what I open this conversation with are people asking you different sorts of questions i know you said essentially they're the same everyone's just kind of revolves around the same set of problems but have have the contours shifted i'm gonna say that 
the you know I mentioned that the anxiety I feel like is at an all time high right now. Um, there's a lot of self consciousness kind of baked into the letters I get, and there's this sort of feeling that um, there are a lot of disclaimers. It's almost like letters used to be kind of free. Like I, you know, I'm sleeping with my. They were unapologetic. You mean? Yeah, I mean there were. I would get letters. I never get letters anymore that are like. I got this letter once that was like, I want to cheat on my wife. Because you were getting letters from people who were just stating their problems without a bunch of throat clearing. It it kind of came out of that sort of like almost like penthouse forum. Yes. Like, hey, oh my God. Yeah. This, on you. this is, this is what it is. And that was just part of the, almost the, the style of, of question asking and giving answers. And you're right well, now you, it's very much like, I know I'm a terrible person and I know I shouldn't be feeling this way and blah, 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 blah. Yes. There's a, it's almost like reading, um, reading a personal essay where someone wants to, or, or an op-ed where someone wants to address all of the thoughts in the other person's brain, in the reader's brain. Like, now I know you're thinking this and I know you're thinking that. And, and sometimes, I mean, to me, it goes a lot deeper than that because it's not just throat clearing. Like, I'm sorry to say it this way. I'm sorry. You know, I know a lot of people are suffering during the pandemic. Like that's the common one that I get now. Privilege check. Yes. It's like, I know, well, you know, there was a, there was a period, I think that this has actually gone down a little bit, but there was a period where people would say, um, I can't, I don't know what to do with my life. I know it's a privilege just to, you know, contemplate the problem. You know, it's like there all this guilt around, like even looking at your own life and just making a different decision, like as if that's a waste of time, you know, as if like animals, on the planet don't sometimes. Right. And also as if that's something that only a certain kind of person does, like, you know, everybody looks at their life. As if it's navel gazing to try to make a new choice about your own life. Right. Right. Or as if it's something that only people of a certain income do or a certain background, like it's just what human beings do. And there's, there's also the issue of, you know, if you have any advantage at all, you have to address that if you have. I mean, I, the thing is, the, I sort of, in some ways, it's nice to hear these sounds because, I mean, you know, it's not like there's, it, it's a force of evil in the world that people are, you know, thinking about how they fit into systems and how they fit in, fit into the larger society. I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I think the, 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 the issue for me in terms of, uh, emotional health and mental health comes down to this idea that unless, you know, anything short of fighting, um, for, for, to raise awareness about climate change, um, is, makes me a bad person, you know, or anything short of re- waging revolution today, uh, makes me a lazy piece of shit. Um, I, I'm not against uh, people fighting to raise awareness about these things remotely, clearly. But um, the, you know, it's almost like I do. I do feel like there's been an increase in this kind of letter that's sort of like I don't, you know, I can't find, I can't figure out what's right for me, and merely trying to figure out what's right for me is an embarrassment. Like I'm just a big embarrassment. Everything I do is embarrassing and is are they an embarrassment or a bad person or both sometimes there's a moral kind of undercurrent like 
I need to make sure to make the good choices um, that we all agree are good. I mean, there's a little bit of a, like, we all agree what's good. We all agree what's bad. And we need to make sure that we do the good things and not the bad things. And I'm worried that one of the things that I do might be one of the bad things. And it's like, well, I mean, that's kind of how we figure out our desires, right? Like some of our desires, it's important to know what your desires are without shame, but the world is made of shame these days, you know, the shame comes at you at every level. So how do you navigate through shame and understand your own desires if the entire thing is guided by this extremely almost Catholic view of like, oh, I shouldn't have that urge. That means I'm a selfish piece of shit, you know? Right. Well, it's, it is that, but also what you're describing is looking, is experiencing your life through the lens of intersectional framework, right? I mean, it is, I find it really telling that in the last, you know, several years, you're getting letters with these kinds of intonations because people are, people are going through colleges and getting steeped in intersectional framework and critical yeah, race. I don't theory. buy that. I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to throw bullshit down on that one. <laughs> no, this is good. Cause let me just say, I wonder, but I'm not, I, I think that they are seeing the world that way. And I don't think it's all bad, but like just to what you just described, like, I know I need to, you know, acknowledge that I, I, you know, it's a privilege to even have this problem that comes directly out of that modality. And that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we all went to, if you're just talking about education, I think we all went to colleges where people said, uh, you know, it's important to recognize this and recognize that. And to people, I just, I think you're almost responding to like, the, the buzzwords of the moment that do the same work and heavy lifting that the same buzzword, different buzzwords did 20 years ago. Now, inter- yeah, intersectional framework is a very specific thing. And I think it's a very good thing, you know, when it's not misapplied. I, so, I mean, but you can't tell me that what we you're went saying, through. You're pinpointing it to colleges saying like, yeah, this, uh, that comes out of colleges. That's the brainwashing that they're getting in colleges that makes kids this way. No, I think it's just part of the culture. I mean, I would say I'd argue that, you know, my kids are on TikTok. My kids are well versed in all of the language you're talking about. And when I do an accent, they call me racist. You know, I mean, this is the culture. It's not it's not college. Well, okay, but it is okay. It's common in the culture culture to talk about who you're hurting by, you know, making certain sounds by people who are in the media, who went to a certain kind of college, got a certain kind of education. We're not seeing it. And it's now all over the place. But I, I, I want to go back. I to mean, that's, you know, I, that's not my, that's not my horn to blow personally. Okay. I just don't think it doesn't completely apply to what, to, to what my focus is. I, I understand I what you're. Why, I wonder why the nature of these questions have changed. Why are people apologizing for themselves in a way that they didn't four or five, six years ago? Uh, well, I mean, my argument would be that the ambient noise of culture right now is extremely self-conscious. Um, there's an element, I mean, it's like talking about this stuff without getting into the snafus of cancel culture is like, it it can be difficult because I don't really believe that cancel culture is this to paralyzing force 
in the world. Like I, at least as in the terms that it's laid out for me, I don't really buy it. I, but I would say that people have a, have a very increasingly self-conscious notion about what is good and bad and what you should do and shouldn't do. And there's a moralism leaking in to the way that we navigate the world based. And it's, it's fed to us through, in my opinion, mostly social media, like most of the kids, uh, my kid's age, I have a 12 year old and a 14 year old spend a ton of time on social media. Most of the adults I know, and I'm 50, uh, spend a a lot of time on social media. Most of the writers in media spend a fair amount of time on social media. And the, there's a strange kind of reigning, uh, paralysis that set in partially because if you're, you know, if you just, if you want to limit it to just like, let's talk about the people who run publications, like you run a publication, they publish, you know, your publication publishes something that a lot of people don't like. They raise a stink on Twitter and they say, this publication should be burned to the ground, you know? And then you, what you have, it, it doesn't, it's not, it's not like a direct situation where you say, um, those people are wrong or those people are right. It's just like the, the, the leaders of publications become less and less willing to publish things that are uh, interesting, honestly. I mean, I'm not even talking about taking a political stand. I'm just saying like, you can't say things a certain way. You can't do that. I mean, and it's, it's all, to me, it's completely forgivable. Like it's the nature of how our lives are structured at this point. It's the nature of our culture at this moment. It will shift. um, But I do think that we're all ingesting this, extreme self-consciousness that blows back onto the self. And that's the part that is of interest to me. I mean, creatively, I'm interested in the shift in the culture, but only in as much as, I mean, and this is my, you know, selfish perspective, I guess, but like, I would like to see more interesting wild voices out in the world. And I don't see, I find them mostly in newsletters, right? I don't find them in published work. It's harder to find stuff. I think we absolutely agree. And I think we're seeing that. That's why people are moving to Substack and everything that we've been talking about. But I I just don't. But then it, but but then I just want to add though, that it goes back to the self too, right? Like the way that people ingest this stuff, like even my kids, it's like, I want, I have to have long talks with them at times where I'm saying, you don't have to do the most right thing all the time in the center of your heart, you can actually, you're a child. You can, you can experiment and discover things and wander and you're going to make mistakes. Like there's no way to choose the one true path every day. But it is coming ultimately from a certain ideology. It's we're seeing it in social media. We're seeing it on TikTok, but how can uh, the, the basis of this is this particular way of looking at the world. Oh, wait a minute. Now, I'm power. just talking about an advice column. I, you want to talk about some monolith that's controlling the universe. Is this a, is this some kind of Illuminati uh, yes, conspiracy moment? Like what, who is controlling the monolithic uh, ideology that, of which you speak? Well, 
I don't, what do you mean by monolithic? I don't know. What's the idea? I mean, who, what, who's, you're saying, you're insisting that it comes from an ideology. I'm just talking about like psychology and how the internet affects our psychological experience of our identity. And you're like, but Heather, it is coming from an ideology. I'm like, whose ideology? Like, what are you talking about? Well, why is it that? Who's the uh, source here? I, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole conversation. It's, it's, it, it it did start in universities. It did start in liberal arts programs and social media has amplified it. I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, this is a whole complicated thing. And I, you know, I've said many times intersectionality on its face is a really useful model for looking at power differentials. It was a, it was a law. It was a legal theory, legal framework anyway. But I actually think this is important because it is filtering down into letters that you're getting from people wanting help with their personal lives. It's, it's permeates. It's the, it's the air we're breathing. So, you know, whether or not you want to like use words like cancel culture, which I do not like to use because it's meaningless. uh, I, I do think that it's, it's all, it's all of a piece. Like, why is it that seven years ago we were allowed to say like completely irreverent, rude, you know, what would now be considered racist, even though at the time we were, you know, making fun of racists. Uh, wh- why was that allowed? And now there's like, no, there's no one can even process it. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I would, I would argue that these kinds of things, um, these sorts of like uh, cultural trends shift uh, both ways and in many different directions, like in 2018, for example, just one example, I did an interview. It was supposed to be about um, the etiquette of dealing with your Trumpy relatives uh, at Thanksgiving, right? And it was for NPR. And the they asked me, you know, it was sort of, I was sort of supposed to say how to put, explain how to politely uh, have a wonderful holiday meal without causing trouble with your relatives. That was essentially the the agenda of the interview. And then they got to like, what happens if your uncle says, you know, even football is controversial now, you know, that word controversial. It's like, what happens if your uncle says, um, says something disparaging about the people who are kneeling on the field? And I was like, well, if your uncle says something about the people kneeling on the field, you should say, uh, those people are kneeling, uh, because they're trying to let you know that we live in a racist country. And if you don't understand, if you're not listening hard enough to understand why they would have concerns about, uh, black children being shot by racist cops or concerns about a racist system in a racist country, then you too are upholding that racist system and you're a racist. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was like, and I feel really strongly about this. Okay. And, and it's just, that's something that I think we all have a responsibility to say to our relatives. Um, and they cut my interview. And NPR did. Yeah. I would think that's the answer they would want. In two, this is what I'm trying to say, Megan, in 2018, saying that this we live in a racist country was treated as totally un, uh, too controversial. And the reason that they didn't tell me they cut the interview, I just tuned in and it was Mallory Ortberg, uh, now Danny Lavery. Uh, but she was still, he, she was Mallory then. And she was, she was, uh, um, she, and she did a great job. 
I love I love Danny, but the but the point is I tuned in, and it wasn't me. And then we asked them why they cut the interview, and they said it was too con- it's too controversial. Well, and um, kind of so what I'm so what I'm so what I'm saying is these things shift back and forth, and a different there are ways that just you know what's there's some kind of. Uh, you know, there's always, it's like different things are being, are being squelched at different times. That's, that's what I, I don't I think that there's a, I, I think you. there's I an avoidance you. of conflict, right? So a lot of the self-consciousness of media right now is just that same avoidant nature. It's like, we can't touch this. NPR went from, what I'm saying is it's incredibly fickle. NPR went from saying, um, Oh, don't say the word racist on our on our show to talking about racism around the clock, um, which God bless, you know, but it's hard not to become cynical about these sorts of forces in the world after a while, because you feel like it's extremely skin deep. You know, you feel like there's not, you know. Yeah, I don't. I think there is there isn't a lot of ideology behind a lot of these changes. People are just doing what's the most safe. That's that is actually my argument against what you're suggesting. Okay, but see, this is the thing. I mean, and I know we've had we've had disagreements over the last few years, often in a sort of un- unpleasantly tense way. But I, again, I keep coming back to this unpleasantly I like tense. Agree. I would call it pleasantly tense, Megan. I think we've had a good time of arguing with each other. Um. I, but I feel like we agree, like on ninety-five percent of this. It's just we're sort of where we part is like uh, either where it's coming from or what to do about it. Maybe because well, I just think you either you either get wrapped up in like there's an enemy here and we need to fight it, or you don't. And I just think you're much more in the like I see an enemy and we've got to fight. And I'm just more, more like this is just what culture does. It's social reproduction. Uh, people want to reproduce the status quo. They want to keep things the same as they always were, and it's fucking annoying. Well, but what do you mean by I'm that? Not, I'm not saying the stakes aren't bigger than it's fucking annoying, but um, culture reproduces itself. People want to stay safe, and the people in, the people in power want to maintain power. And, and right now, a way to maintain power is by not allowing uh, challenges, by allowing only superficial challenges to the status quo, as yeah, in- I, I- We'll police your language, but secretly, you know, not so secretly, the people who are still holding power are the same. We'll shift around some of these, you know, highly visible jobs so that you get this this sense that there's a really great intersectional multicultural uh, feel to what we're doing. But behind the scenes, we're exactly the same as we've always been. And it's uncontroversial, you know? We are not courting controversy ever. We're doing what's safe for us to maintain the power that we have. You know, in other words, I'm suggesting that it's a little bit more to do with capitalism class than it is to do with these sort of signifiers that I think are, you know, the idea that all of these signifiers are, you know, destroying our culture and they all come from colleges. I I don't buy that. But- the way that the culture is being held hostage by people's fear of being called racist or bigoted or transphobic. I would not call it held hostage. I just think that we're in a phase of like people freaking out. Well, in a phase of freaking out, 
okay, I, that's maybe your way of saying we're being held hostage. Like you, you have moved your column to Substack because you want to be able to speak more freely. Am I um, wrong? Uh, I think that it's like hard to write weird shit for uh, established mainstream publications at this moment. You know, and and I don't I don't think it's it's not really political for me. It's more like um, if you're if you're working for people who feel paranoid about how they're being perceived at all times. And I again, I just think that we're in this paranoid spot in the culture and I don't think it's going to last forever. I think that there's a way that the feedback loop of social media is sort of overdetermined right now. It's like a big, it's, it's, it's kind of like it has an exaggerated a point uh, of importance in the culture at this moment in a way that it won't uh, necessarily five years from now. So um, how do you see that change? Well, I think there'll be new publications that are weird and odd and they'll be embraced and people will, I mean, look, when we started suck, uh, I didn't start Suck. I was not a founder of Suck. Listen to how I just, I made myself the boss. Um, but when they started Suck at the beginning of the internet, um, people had a real appetite for obnoxiousness and conflict and disagreement. And it, that's just not in the picture at this moment. But I think that there'll be, there'll be a return to that. Where Because I, I think what I was going to say is, when we were talking about, you know, reader feedback and comments and stuff and, and how I used to react to that stuff in kind of like a glib way, where it was like, oh, this again, haha. There's a way that we're not there yet with social media where people don't understand. You can kind of see it happen in different Twitter users where, um, in particular, where like they're constantly engaging and fighting with people and retweet, you know, quote retweeting and saying like, you're an idiot on top. And then eventually they land in a place where they're like this kind of engagement, you know, it's, it's like this leash demeans the both of us. The, <laughs> just is like a line from the Simpsons that a kid, the baby, the baby translator uh, tells us that the baby is thinking this at her uh, dad, but, um, or the mom, but like, you know, there's a way that we're t we're we're paying too much attention to noise, um, and I think that people are just going to get a little bit more. Uh, you know, I think some of the important changes that have happened over the past, you know, social justice issues that have made some progress over the past few years, will keep some of those gains, and we'll lose other gains, and then there'll be. The, but in general, the culture's going to get much more wild and obnoxious. I don't think the culture is going to get more and more restricted and more paralyzed. No way. Um, because it's not, people aren't very happy. I think that there's a way that everyone in the picture is unhappy. For sure. Um, For sure. But do you not think that there are very large cohorts of people in their twenties and their thirties and maybe a little bit in their forties that really truly believe that we have to dismantle the system. We have to change the way we talk, that we have to see uh, white supremacy everywhere. There are people who genuinely believe that in a not cynical way at all. And so are you saying that they're going to they're going to evolve or they're going to see things differently? Or I, I'm just afraid that w everything's going to become more siloed. Like I, it, this, this is not sustainable because everybody's miserable, but I'm afraid we're going to have like, you know, a bunch of substacks or whatever iteration five years from now of substack 
versus whatever's left of, you know, sort of legacy media reinventing itself as some kind of like watered down intersectionality. I don't, you know, that's my worry. What What is watered down intersectionality? You know, which is another word I don't like to use. But yeah, like all this kind of stuff you see, you know, the, the you know, co- corporate wokeism, you know, the idea that everything, throwing around terms like white supremacy. I mean, today we're recording this on uh, April 19th. So there was an op-ed in the New York Times today from one of the directors of Planned Parenthood uh, basically apologizing for the legacy of Margaret Sanger, who is the inventor of the birth control, uh, saying that they were going to distance themselves from her, that uh, that Planned Parenthood has been uh, centering women too much. And it actually started, it said something like, we are a Karen organization and we will no longer be a Karen organization. It was <laughs> so, it was so just, it, it was it was like looking at somebody in a defensive crouch. It was so just cowardly and unimaginative. And I, I, I just it's like a joke, but it's it's sad. That to me is a hostage note. When I say the culture is being taken hostage, we see this again and again. Instead well, see, of actually what's interesting is you're, you're identifying it as like you're looking at like the. The press release that they uh, put out, which, you know, I'm just saying you're looking at the language and the message and you're saying corporate wokeism, like on the, you know, my first thought is just like corporations are, we have to worry about corporations getting too woke. Like that's actually, we're literally going to lose sleep over a behemoth company becoming hyper aware of social justice issues like that's one of our major concerns here they're they're, they're doing damage control it's like if you've got a crisis the first thing you're going to do is like you know yeah but i don't but it's exactly at the level of like heather just said racism on npr we're going to cut her interview it's like i'm actually surprised that they would cut an interview uh, for that in 2018 i i I believe you there's a kind of this is the thing to me you're talking about a sort of paranoia and fear uh, expressed by people in positions of power that are just like changing their message ever so slightly and pandering to what they see, something they see in social media. And I would rather like if, if, if Planned Parenthood sent out something that said, we've actually decided we're doing it all wrong. Um, and we're going to level the playing field and everyone's going to make the same amount of money who works in our organization. They were talking about paying employees. They were talking, they were basically saying that they were going to, you know, address transgender health. I think it's, it really sounded to me like something bad was about to happen. Like the trans community was going to find some way to gang up uh, on Planned Parenthood and they were getting out in front of it. I, it was Remarkable. It didn't have anything to do with paying people who worked at Planned Parenthood. Well, I I know it didn't have anything to do. This is what I'm saying. If there was something substantive to the message, then I'd be interested. It's what you're what you're describing is you're taking something that's like a clearly in substance. There's no substance in this message, and you're saying this is proof that the culture will become more and more locked up and more. You know that in real terms. 
I mean, and and back to like the idea of seeing white supremacy everywhere, like there, yeah, white supremacy is kind of everywhere, isn't it? I mean, white people are in power in our country everywhere. I mean, that's it. I don't think that there's a giant threat to that changing if that's the, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not, I guess I don't understand why that seems hysterical, you know, like it's when, if it's, you know, elementary school kids are being taught that they shouldn't speak if they're white. I mean, I, I hate even saying that because I sound like Tucker Carlson, but I, you know, I hear it again and again and again and again. I don't know. I, this is, you know, I honestly, Megan, I feel like the, the, one of the, one of the things that I think is sort of lamentable about where we are as a culture right now is that everyone feels qualified to talk about everything and to hold forth about it. And I, I honestly don't, I don't have a real interest in this particular kind of battle, you know, like it's not, it's not that I but don't. It's so interesting either. What's that? <laughs> That's interesting. It's See, I, interesting, I but I it's not, so. I don't know. It's, it's like, you know, it, it's kind of like, that's just, at some point, I think one of the things that keeps you from losing your head in this world is being able to look around and say, ah, that's, you know, that is not a doorway that I'm interested in going into. If you talk about it in terms of generations, if you talk about it in terms of like how we kind of metabolize a lot of these messages and how we feel about them, then that's my wheelhouse. But it's not to say like, there's some spreading ideology that's going to take over and, and, and fuck us all. I want to know who the us is, you know, because if the us is white people, I'm not sure that I can get that. It's just like, Oh, so I should be, you know, worried about my future as a white person. I mean, I don't know. I just, I have a little bit of a suspicion around the way that this, this sort of, the idea that somebody somewhere, the colleges have an agenda and they're spreading the word. And, you know, I just don't, I'm, I, I'm never convinced by that. I don't see it. I think, you know, colleges have always been very liberal places for decades and decades. And I, you know, it doesn't all fit together in the same ways for me, this, this picture. I get, um, but I, I do think it's, what's profound actually what you're saying about the the way people are apologizing for themselves when they when they write to you see i this yeah, to me but the, is like the intersection like i i get like your wheelhouse is this other thing and you're amazing at it like that's i i totally get that you and i are you know kind of mining different uh different territories but i think that they come together um in pretty fascinating ways occasionally and this feels like like one of them like why are these people sort of falling all over themselves, feeling terrible about themselves. You say it's social media, but what is the actual substance that is flowing through the social media channels that's that's causing this? Well, I, that's not something I could necessarily answer. I mean, I think that the I, like I said, I mean, the the my level of observation is that um, we comment on each other's behavior constantly online, and big surprise, everyone feels increasingly self-conscious to the point where they can't move. I mean, I, I don't think, and that includes, um, you know, the public face of corporations it doesn't include the people who are running the corporations. As far as I can tell, um, it's the, it's the language of the culture and the way uh, the social part of the culture that is affected by this, uh, 
the shift in, you know, this being hyper exposed to each other's uh, issues and uh, complaints and um, needs. And, you know, there are ways that that has had a made a beautiful difference in the world. And there are ways that we're all sort of choking on our inability to, um, to sort of just carve out a little space and be who we are. I'm not, I'm not suffering from that at all because I'm very lucky to have a lot of choices. Um, but it's very, but as you said, you know, it's very hard to kind of like, uh, to, to decide that you have a right to a voice at this moment and to kind of find a place where you can, as a writer or an artist or, or as anything where you can sort of do your thing and show your unique self, I think is, I think it's very difficult right now, but I do think that that will shift. I don't, I actually don't believe that it's all going to get worse and worse and more restrictive and more restrictive and, um, or that there's any guiding force behind it. Uh, there's a guiding force behind it, but I do. But I also think that it's it can't possibly get what worse. Did you, did although, you just say there's a guiding force behind it? I I, do, I, do <laughs> I feel like I'm on a religious. Uh, this is some kind. It's almost like a religious podcast. Yeah, we're gonna have a. We're gonna, you I'm get gonna to put it. in the moral after everything I say, Megan. Maybe you should tell people that we're, we've been friends for a long time. <laughs> they can Venmo me or you right now if podcast, and whoever gets the most money wins. We're going to pause briefly here for a message from a sponsor. Be back in a minute. Hi there. My name's Paul Shirley. I'm a former professional basketball player turned writer and also the founder of a thing called The Process. I'm honored to have a few seconds within Megan's podcast to tell you what we do at The Process. If you're anything like most people, you're scattered, overstimulated, and frustrated by your inability to concentrate for long periods of time texts, emails, social media, and somehow you're expected to make progress at your job and on your passion projects. It's a lot. This is where the process comes in. I believe that everything worth doing requires a process to do it, a set of habits and routines that allow you to access sustained periods of deep work. Through virtual co-working and productivity coaching, that's what we do at the process. We help people like you learn to be productive, not busy. And here's the best part. You won't be doing this alone. Inside our platform, you'll meet people from all over the world, people who are dealing with the same frustrations you are, and people who want the same things you do, structure, accountability, community, and most of all, progress on the projects most important to you. We'd love to have you. To learn more, come see us at createyourprocess.com. I feel like instead of being in the ideas business, it's suddenly everybody was in the hashtag resistance business or the me too business. And, you know, this started before Trump. And so what is the me too business? Because that doesn't sound like a super lucrative business to me. In terms of writing about things, of course it was super lucrative. If you were making the right noises about, about me too, you were going to be elevated. You were going to, I don't know. You've always had a, you've always, always embraced an incredibly cynical view of this stuff. And I just like, I can't get, I'm not down with it. I don't believe it. I mean, I think cynical is, is profiting off 
statistics that are woefully in, inaccurate. What, you want to what percentage think, of people who talk and write and think about who, what percentage of voices in the Me Too movement, would you say, are cynically using the movement in order to make a dollar? I think that it is, well, I see it as cynical. I think it's opportunistic. I think it's convenient. I think it's, I think it's, a it's conven- I think it's, con- okay. So I think it's convenient to call a movement that's very, quite, quite obviously an earnest attempt at social change opportunistic when you don't agree with the central tenets of the movement. Like that's a very outsider, like, I call it anything that doesn't involve me or doesn't doesn't interest me or doesn't quite line up with my views is just mere opportunists. But what I feel is deeply felt and motivated. I think this was like our our original argument here. The idea that one in five women are raped on campus. That's not true. That's just that's just patently untrue. And the idea that now an entire movement, an entire way of looking at the world, an entire way of looking at women has been filtered through this inaccurate statistic and notion of reality. I mean, it's like it's that really, really frustrates me, because if you want to help women acknowledge what's true, if you want to help anybody, let's look at what we have to work with in a very in a in an honest way and talk from there. Well, you know, as you know, I haven't found, I'm not struck with a dishonesty of me too, every time I dip a toe into it personally. But I think you're, you know, you're, you're working in a different kind of, kind of milieu. I mean, I, all I'm saying is if you were like an opinion columnist, uh, and you wanted to, uh, attach yourself to a certain set of assumptions, uh, you were going to benefit uh, over these last few years, in a way that if you challenged them, you were not going to benefit. Yes, I mean, and when the ba- and when the backlash to me too is complete, which it will be at some point in the future, the people who are voicing opinions that are in you know that are in cahoots with the backlash to me too will become incredibly popular, and those people will be seen as opportunists. I mean, why are there only two lanes? It's not one or the other. Uh, okay. Like, it's just, I feel like it's just, this is the problem. Did with I media. say there are only two? Well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, the thing is, this is not my fucking personal bugaboo. I know, I know, I know. It's not my thing. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to, I just, I've learned there's just like wh- what like should i get off and go find some stats to counter what you're saying it's like this is the fucking time sink of our moment it's like people asking you shit about things that like you just i mean whatever i can i can go on and on about how i disagree with you you already know the ways that i disagree with you i i'm not trying to take this conversation like to places that it doesn't need to go but i actually think this is germane to what you do and what you do spectacularly well, which is meet people on their emotional and intellectual level. And our ideas about what's driving the self-consciousness and angst and unhappiness of the populace are very different. That's true. That's true. It doesn't naturally go. It doesn't naturally spiral into the things that you're talking about for me at all. Um, Is, is media in a fucked up place right now? Yeah. I think that's, it's pretty boring. Um, is 
But is it also, are there great things about what's happening? Yeah, I think it's pretty exciting. I mean, there's a lot of exciting shit happening and there's a lot of, there's a way, I mean, I just personally, I, my, I, it is very personal to me. Like I just love, you know, I loved Grantland. I love Gawker and I want to see weird voices out there. And, and I think that the culture is about to shift in a pretty wild direction and we're going to see a lot more interesting things happening. And I'm hoping that um, a lot of the changes that have taken place will move past the superficial stage. I mean, I don't think that, I think that the, the paralysis that you're talking about socially, like the, the sort of cultural paralysis where no one can say anything that they really need to say, it's all kind of, it all comes out of this um, space where it's all like just corporate messaging. I mean, it's, you put, you hit the nail on the head. It's too superficial to make a difference. I think everybody on all sides knows that. And it, I would love to see there be more real change at these places that have to do with policy instead of like, we've heard that people are not happy with the, you know, every single aspect of Margaret Sanger's existence. And so, and we also have heard that people are using the word Karen to refer to an out of touch uh, older white person. And we want to stop being the bad things and start being the good things. You know, that's the problem that I have. My problem is with this superficial attempt to seem intersectional when in fact, the people who hold the power are exactly the same. Um, I, I, I don't think that it serves anyone that we're all slicing and dicing these two totally superficial things and acting like we're changing the world while doing it. Um, real change would be something to really talk about. Right, um, I agree. But I think in order to have that, we need to have conversations that cannot be had because people just refuse to engage. I think there are people who are engaging intelligently on things. And I think there are people who aren't. And, um, the, 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 you know, confusing, uh, this thinker or that thinker with kind of like a bunch of people who are making TikToks is probably not, uh, that helpful to the overall. I mean, yeah, for all of us getting too wrapped up in, you know, the self-consciousness of the culture at this moment is that's paralyzing, but for stupid reasons, you know, it's not, it it doesn't do anything. It's pretending that um, a mob came and ripped this man out of his job. You know, I I don't know. It's it's like you've got people making uh, active decisions that are fearful and safe and avoid controversy. That's what I see on all sides of this everywhere. And that's just, that's just not that well thought out. You know, the question is quality. It's not like, which team are you on? And I, you know, I find the way that this shit breaks down is so, it's like, you can't talk about it intelligently. It just sounds that's superficial. That's exactly what I've been saying. That's exactly, see, again, I feel like we, we agree on most of this and then there's just like, maybe we don't, we're not, seeing the same but then but see when you characterize you know the me too movement as this cynical you know grabbing of attention and dollars was cynical but i certainly i think that um people know that where just their bread feels is like a, well you know that feel to me that feels like part of the problem you know it's just like oh this entire very complex thing happened but 
you know, all, uh, all I see are opportunists in this mob. I mean, I just think that's, that, that's part of the problem. That's like a Twitter take to me. Well, it's too, too long for that. I hope you keep this in your podcast, Megan. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good, actually. That was a Twitter take, Megan. I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing is, if you can get people to, if you can get people to fucking have conversations, that's the first step in the right direction. That's the, you know, and I do think that like, I, I, I feel like, don't you think that maybe we're moving towards a place where people are going to be less locked up and less self-conscious and they're going, you know, the culture is going to shift and get more free. I hope so. I really hope so. Um, but some days I think so. And then some days, I mean, the, the people that I hear from who are afraid to say anything in their jobs, the people, the students who come to me and say, I can't write what I want to write. I can't say what I want to say. And so that actually let's, you know, just to kind of wander slowly back to where we started. What, what are you hoping to do differently now with, with Polly um, on, on Substack? And let's actually also talk about Molly because uh, I feel like Molly is maybe willing to get in trouble uh, in ways that, that Polly has not been allowed to so far anyway. Yeah. So uh, with Polly, you know, Polly started out uh, on the all and when, and also in the early days when Polly moved to the cut, uh, the voice of that column was pretty weird. Um I definitely was digressive and the, some of the columns were very, very long. Um, but I, I had a lot of swagger back then that I think I've kind of like bled out of the column a little bit too much. Um, and so what I'd like to do uh, in moving Polly to the newsletter, I just want to have more fun with, um, I'd, I'd really like to have more fun with the, the, ideas that I've sort of stumbled on over the past nine years and also have more fun in my responses to letters. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the, it really is the best job I've ever had. And it's my favorite kind of writing to do. And it is, um, it's kind of like the most satisfying and, and rewarding part of my day is writing Ask Polly. So, um, so I think that I just realized that, I mean, in some ways, okay, so in terms of, to put it in terms of the self-consciousness that I think is just a natural outcropping of, well, whatever, I won't go back to that. But the, but I think that in some ways I was afraid that if I focused on Ask Polly in any real way beyond the advice column, that I would wake up one morning and there'd just be like a um, nude colored microphone in front of my mouth. Um, and I'd be pacing on a stage. Is this like a dream? Is this talking like a about, no, I just have always worried that I've become some kind of a guru. If I put too much energy into the oh, advice column. Yeah. Oh, you mean yeah. you would have like a, a Ted talky. Yeah. Like I'd, like I'd, I'd wake up a morning and I'd be like some kind of beast that some kind of opportunist beast that I didn't want to become, you know, which I think is like, I don't know. It's, it, it's hard because I think sometimes, you know, again, social media, you go on social media and you consume things in extremely superficial ways. And you sort of like, you're exposed to the whole world and you start to see certain things that you fear becoming, uh, 
you start to see that as as just a you know undifferentiated kind of blob of like you know live laugh love signs right so like the thing that i fear becoming is like this substanceless uh positivity um factory you know i don't think um, you're in any danger of that <laughs> uh so but then Molly, I created Molly in 2019 because I was kind of probably reaching my like peak paranoia about becoming like too bland and too positive. And I had all these, um, I don't know, I was probably going through a midlife crisis, to be honest. And I had all these like bad, dark thoughts that I sort of like needed a place to go. And I also sort of thought um, it would be fun to have a newsletter. Um and what should I do with it? And I'd always sort of made jokes about how I was going to start an advice column that was called Ask Molly that was like Polly's evil twin uh, giving it really evil advice um, and or, you know, making fun of Polly. Um, so that was the first thing that came to mind. I created it and I started by writing evil advice and then I kind of spun off into some humor. And then I last year... During the pandemic, I had a few major health uh, issues and that I was struggling through, and life was dark. And po- Molly just became uh, woo, like weird. Um, so, can you give any, any examples? Well, it, it's hard to describe. It's sort of like um, prose about what's wrong with everything, kind of, right? Uh, yeah. That's an evergreen. Yeah, as you well know. Um, prose about like uh, feelings and how to make the mundane world more interesting, kind of. Like it's it's sort of like, ask Molly. I mean, Molly, I think of Molly as like a, she's a little bit like a, um, like a, a spirit from the distant, but like a, you know, she's like a, she's like a ghost that haunts, uh, <laughs> It haunts uh, some haunted house. I don't know. She's what? What is the best way to describe it? She's like kind of a little bit of a junkie, though. She's kind of like a little bit um, anxious and needy, and but sort of dismissive. And she's a tangle of. She's an id. And Molly is my id. Let's put it that way. Okay. And then Polly is more like the superego. But I mean, at some at some point, Polly needed more id, and I think that the new the new Polly will have more id, and Molly can hopefully just stay super weird. Um, I don't want to kill Molly. Uh, Molly is fun, a lot of fun. So before we we wrap up, I know that people like podcasts to go on for six or seven hours, but um, we're gonna we're gonna sort of come to a close here. I want to talk a little bit about your your marriage book because you have have been working on this project for the last couple of years. Um, when is it going to come out and what is it? Uh, it comes out in February of 2022. Um, and it's a book that started as a, a marriage memoir. It was always going to be a marriage memoir, but it was just going to be Ha ha, my marriage is great. And um, yeah, everybody wants to hear that. <laughs> no, like, 
Ha ha, marriage is a nightmare, but mine's fine. So I can tell you what a nightmare marriage is because you know mine's my marriage is working just fine. Um, but the more that I, the more time I spent writing about my marriage, uh, the more I found myself legitimately to questioning, like, is my marriage good? Is my marriage good enough? Is it fine? Am I happy? Am I happy enough? Um, who is that fucking guy? So I said, there was a period of time where I was writing it and I was just like, it, a friend of mine who's a therapist said, um, oh, you're writing a book about your marriage. That's nice. It can end with the end of your marriage. But I, I'm I'm happy about this book, and I, it's going to be fucked up to walk around talking about my marriage whenever anyone asks. Um, you know, I think that that's part of the reason why we're why we're self conscious too is because we're fucking like anything you do, you have to sell yourself, and then you have to answer questions about it, and you have to like go on podcasts and talk for a, an hour and forty minutes. Um, and that you know, and you don't know what the hell you're showing up for. Like this is like it's a, it's a hazard of the trade. Right. Um, and everyone is, I don't know. It's, it, it, the culture is just so strange right now. It's, there are ways that I love it. And there are other ways that it's just, I mean, whatever, obviously it serves me on many levels and it serves you. And we're, here we are, we're independent, like doing our thing. Um, but it's just a, it's just an odd moment. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I, I wish I saw it as strange. I see it as profoundly depressing. It's there's just a built-in vertigo. Why now? Profound. Let's not even. Let's no, not no. Even. We, 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 oh, we man. Need for that. Let's just let's just have a little drink and. But you know, I mean, look. If there's a if there's a path forward, uh, for um, the way things are, I do think that it's it's it includes having hard, difficult conversations and arguments with people who believe different things from you. I mean, we can't just keep fracturing into smaller and smaller groups that believe more specific kinds of things and be we and becoming more and more religious about our own little set of beliefs. So we actually have to be exposed to each other and be willing to try to convince each other. And we have to remain open-minded to what is going on out there. Um, I think that in some ways, uh, we're all a little bit more free to do that after having a being sent to our rooms by the pandemic for a full year. Um, and to me, we're everything's going about to bust out in bright colors and people are going to start uh, kind of communing and speaking to each other openly in productive ways. And it's going to work out. Um, that's my very optimistic Pollyanna ask Polly uh, perspective. That's good. All right. That's like, live love laugh for smart people oh dear that, oh, I love it. <laughs> oh mother fuck. no no i i i actually i i am hopeful too so i'm glad i'm glad that you are so effusively hopeful thank you for coming on you know i love you i know i love you too it's nice to talk to you it was fun yeah it's good to it's good to, to talk in public you know people yeah. like us the audience so yeah well um We'll pick it up soon. And, okay. Uh, good luck with everything in the meantime. You too. Congratulations on uh, Polly's new adventure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Heather Haverleski. She writes the Ask Polly advice column on Substack and is the author of the books, What If This Were Enough? How to Be a Person in the World and Disaster Preparedness. Her next book, Foreverland, will be out next year. 
You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable. There you can get all kinds of perks, including discounts on official unspeakable podcast, nuanced AF merchandise. There's new merchandise available. By popular demand, you can now purchase hats, travel mugs, stickers, magnets, as well as coffee mugs and t-shirts. And also that baby onesie. Find them in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another incredibly nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. Keep fighting your cognitive dissonance. See you next time. Blinded by love and worlds apart. It's a new season of 90 Day Fiancé the other way. TLC is shaking up Sunday nights as all the drama heads overseas. Cheating scandals, culture clashes, and even a devastating hurricane won't stop these six couples from following their hearts. With everything on the line, can their love go the distance? 90 Day Fiancé the other way. Every Sunday at 8, 7 central on TLC. Set your DVR. Sunday! 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 It's the savings event of the season! Progressive's Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Savathon! Your chance to save big by bundling your home and auto insurance! But only this Sunday! 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 Unless you're busy, in which case you can bundle Tuesday! 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 Or if you already have dinner plans, then try Friday! 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 But if the week gets away from you, you can just wait till next Sunday! 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 Because Progressive's Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Savathon isn't going anywhere! 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 Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.